Talk Python to Me, episode number four, with guest Mahmoud Hashemi, recorded Tuesday, April 7th, 2015. You may have noticed that we have new intro music for this show. If you're a fan of the developers, developers, developers music by Smix, don't worry, he's not gone. He'll be back next time. However, I chose this music for this show because it's actually not a performance, but rather sounds from an auditory experience for Wikipedia called Listen to Wikipedia. This is a project written in Python by our guest, Mahmoud. We'll talk a little bit about that during the show. The sounds you hear corresponds to edits, additions, and deletions to Wikipedia. Reading off a few of the topics that cause those sounds are kind of random, but here they are. Asphalt. Geography of Peru. Subobject, Fox, 2013 European Olympics, Pretty Little Liars, and Carrie's Grammar School. If you need some sweet Zen sounds to program to, or are just interested in this project, check it out at listen.hatnote.com and experience Python and Wikipedia and audio all wrapped up into one for yourself. That's listen.hatnote.com. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystems, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter, where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpythontome.com. This episode, we'll be talking to Mahmoud Hashimi about enterprise Python and large-scale Python projects. Mahmoud Hashemi is the lead developer of the Python infrastructure team at eBay and PayPal, where he focuses his development and instruction energies on service frameworks, API design, and system resiliency. Outside of work, he enjoys coding on his open source projects, which you can find at github.com slash Mahmoud, as well as creating and maintaining several Wikipedia-based projects, such as Listen to Wikipedia and the Weeklypedia. You got it. Excellent. Mahmoud, welcome to the show. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, all, like I said before, I'm a very big fan of the prior two episodes, just listening to the MongoDB episode on my way here today. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, we just released that like a few hours ago. It was great. <laughs> yeah, it pops up on my phone. I listened to it right away. All right. So it sounds like you have some amazing stuff going on at, with Python at PayPal. And you know, the, the way that I sort of got to know you, I, I just ran across this blog post that you did called 10 Myths of Enterprise Python. And I was just, I was seriously blown away at the detail and sort of the, the power of your message that Python is this really fantastic powerful, flexible, and, you know, surprisingly to some people, not to me, but some people, large-scale development platform. Well, and I mean, I don't know what took me so long, honestly. Like that post, uh, you know, we, we were looking for that post years ago. And um, like when we were just starting to evangelize Python and like work on Python here at PayPal. But, uh, you know, like, it was instead, it was like scattered throughout the whole internet. The evidence was there. I was just looking for something that summed it up in that, like, you know, very sort of like modern internet fashion. Uh, but, 
you know, um, and then I guess like uh, I think the, I wrote the first draft of this maybe like a year ago and started using it in internal presentations and so forth. But I mean, yeah, we really did need it something like four or five years ago. And uh, what, what is that quote? You should be the change you want to see in the world. And exactly. Like eventually, eventually, like you know, I just went through the whole process to get onto the corporate blog and like just get it out there to help like you know anyone else who might be in the same sort of bind you know just looking for uh like a comprehensive set of evidence to sort of um quash these uh very persistent arguments that seem to be uh coming up in you know the sort of corporate meetings that uh we all know and love so <laughs> yeah and what i really love about your article is it's so full of evidence like you know, every sentence, every at least every paragraph has a couple of links to other sort of richer articles that back up whatever it is you're talking about. That's great. Yeah, and I mean, I, so I mean, that's the thing. It's like I don't even really feel like that responsible for all of this. All of the evidence was there. It just needed to be collected under one roof and then hopefully have some sort of credible source to it. I mean, the real like seller for me here at PayPal is often that Bank of America has thousands of Python uh, developers, you know. That's a financial institution, um, arguably like much more important and larger than uh, PayPal, um, and uh, they like you know trust Python with all sorts of like activities. So if it's good enough for them, you know them, it should be good enough for us. But the thing is that that's like not really advertised that much, even though they're at PyCon, like doing recruiting, looking for people. If you're looking for a job, maybe call a Bank of America. So yeah, uh, I mean we'll go through them one by one here, I guess today. Uh, but um, for the most part, I guess, I came to write that blog post uh, by way of, like, you know, originally joining P like, uh, PayPal as a PHP developer. Um, not for PayPal, mind you, but uh, that was just what I knew. Like, coming into the company, uh, I saw that there was sort of this, it was like code uh, archaeology, if you would, right? Like, there was some evidence of Python usage dating back to the early days of PayPal, you said prior to HTTP or something like that, right? And prior to Java, quite a way oh, back. Oh, yeah, no, uh, way, way before. So, I mean, basically, when PayPal, like, original PayPal was all C++, and I think still majority of the traffic in the data center is, like, you know, going between, like, C++ services and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a long history here going back to, like, 1998. Pretty much when I came, like, sort of, that ancient civilization was, uh, you know, for the most part gone in 2008, 2009. Where had it moved to? What were people using? You know, I mean, people uh, went and founded uh, YouTube and Yelp and LinkedIn and uh, <laughs> used Python to much, uh, you know, like more visible good than I guess probably has come from my own uh, role here at PayPal. But it's all has to start somewhere. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Like I was telling you before the show, I just talked to the... Uh, Chris McDonough from the Pyramid guys, and he said that also Pyramid is being used at Yelp. So a lot of a lot of things coming together in these two shows. But that's really cool. I think YouTube is really one of the major uh, sort of things we can put up on a pedestal and say, before you say that it can't, look at this and see if you could build that with whatever your you know pet project or pet um, technology is. And another one is Dropbox. Those guys are mm -hmm. really doing interesting stuff, especially with Guido uh, moving over there. 
full time, which is pretty. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. It's 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 pretty it's pretty neat the way the sort of like <laughs> like energy um, inducing effects he has when he sort of like moves between these companies. Uh, like he was previously at Google and like you know worked on App Engine there and uh, you know was I, I guess like probably a very key probably subconscious influence I would guess uh, in PayPal. Uh, sorry, in Python becoming uh, sort of the third like you know stack there at Google. Yeah, that's really cool. Michael here. Thank you so much for listening to and spreading the word about Talk Python to me. The response to the podcast continues to be wonderful and humbling. I have a quick comment about supporting and sponsoring the show. I'm still looking to line up stable corporate sponsorships, but I wanted to tell you about a community-based campaign I'm launching to allow listeners to directly support the show. We are running a Patreon campaign. You might not have heard about Patreon, but it's kind of like Kickstarter for things like podcasts, which release frequent small deliverables rather than one-off large engineering projects. Visit patreon.com slash mkennedy, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash mkennedy, and watch the video to see how you can donate as little as $1 per episode to support Talk Python to me. This is your chance to ensure that the Python community continues to have a strong public voice. Consider supporting us today at patreon.com slash mkennedy, and thanks for listening. So before we move into the myths, let me let me just ask you, like, how did how did PayPal and eBay sort of adopt Python so broadly. So, so there was this history, and then people, some of those people, kind of moved on to do you know minor things like YouTube, and mm-hmm. then, <laughs> and then what? It sounds like you guys are doing a lot of Python stuff now, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, I mean, basically every aspect of PayPal, and it is like a large business with many different concerns. So. Every aspect you can name, we basically have some contingency of like, you know, uh, some contingent of Python in that group. So whether it is um, like, you know, data analysis in the risk group or it is like, you know, sort of, um, let's see, I'm trying not to give away too much here. Uh, yeah, don't, don't <laughs> spill any super secret things you can't talk about, but, you know. But, uh, yeah, but I mean... Um, you know, admin tools, batch jobs, um, mid-tier services, um, even even like, let's see, even, I mean, even some web development and web service like front-end type stuff is going on as well, even though uh, it's primarily shifted to other stacks at the moment. Sure. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a nice lead-in to sort of some of the myths. So on your on your post... You say that you have actually over 50 Python projects running their PayPal, eBay, and you sort of go through a list of all the different kinds of things. You know, how many people are working on these projects, and are they all active, and what's the story there? Well, I mean, Python, Python is sort of like, you know, kind of renowned for being able to let you move fast. And it's interesting how uh, one Python developer can sort of uh, sweep through, like, his new team or his new organization and, like, you know, fix a whole lot of things and get a whole lot of balls rolling. 
Um, so, I mean, the the fifty plus number is really definitely immediately attributable to uh, <laughs> like Python's own like high efficiency. Right. It's easy to start and complete fifty projects more so than say C plus plus or something like Java. Right. I think I think one developer in twenty fourteen got something like uh, three services uh, launched on like the eBay side uh, using some of our new like cloud uh, integration stuff, and that's just one guy. He's a team of one. And um, so <laughs> the meetings are short. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> basically, uh, I mean, when I, when I started out, like there were maybe it, it started with me making like a uh, DL or like, you know, sort of having an email list on a listserv. And um, they uh, I think maybe like 25 people joined up. Right. And then I think now the DL has on the order of 260 people um, who use Python on a somewhat regular basis. And. You know, I, I mean, I can't take much. I mean, I can't take all the credit for this because, uh, like, a lot of it is due to the sort of like burgeoning, like, OpenStack wave. Like, eBay is one of the main contributors to OpenStack, main users of OpenStack. PayPal has also followed suit there. Um, and then uh, also, we've done some acquisitions. You know, of you know companies that use um, Python pretty like heavily. So. Uh, I mean, it sort of like had a lot of organic growth. I'd say most of the growth is organic, but uh, a lot of it is also attributable to those external projects as well. Yeah, sure. So some of it came from the outside and sort of pollinated the internal folks, right? Something to that effect. Right, and and that's why I think it's, it's really important that PayPal um, and eBay sort of participate in that uh, you know open source ecosystem so that they can uh, continue to derive benefits from that, um, as we've seen like in the past few years here. Yeah, do you guys have like a corporate GitHub place where you're doing things or anything like that? Absolutely. GitHub.com forward slash eBay, GitHub.com forward slash PayPal. Uh, you know, um, I don't personally maintain the Python SDKs by any means for these uh, companies, but I do know the maintainers quite well. So I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take take some, some email spam if you want to email me at mahmood at paypal.com. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll forward your messages on to the folks in charge of those. But they're, they also are pretty responsive on GitHub issues. And um, I mean, all in all, I think that like these Python developers that are in our like GitHubs are pretty much on the ball when it comes to like the whole open source philosophy. That's cool. Can you open like an issue on on GitHub uh, for the team? Yeah. Okay. Very cool. So you can yeah. participate there. Even the Python infrastructure team, you know, who was mostly an internal team, now has like a uh, a repo up there. It's a, a mid-tier server framework. Um, it can be used for frontier as well, but we primarily use it here for mid-tier stuff. And um, it is called support. So you just go github.com forward slash PayPal forward slash support. And, um, you know, hopefully you'll see me updating the docs. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> fervently. <laughs> yes. That sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. So you want to want to touch on some of the myths? <laughs> Absolutely, that's what we're here for. After yeah, all, yeah, I think there's probably there's probably fifty myths if we sat down and brainstorm over enough beer and over enough time. It, but it's true. <laughs> I had to cut it down to these ten. But I but think yeah. you, I think you really did hit some uh, interesting ones. And you know, I maybe this is just my sort of myopic view of the world. But to me, it feels like Python is becoming quite a bit more popular in the last five years than than it has been. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is what is leading to into what I think I had as myth number one, which was that Python is a new language. Exactly. People are just now starting to hear about it. They feel like, oh, this thing's taken off, but it's right. It's not yeah, new, I mean, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it's technically it's older than Java. Um, it, you know, was, its first release uh, happened three years before the first release of Java. And, um, I mean, it comes from, like, a really long history as well. Like, it's not just, a, you know, sort of... Yeah, so it's not a, um, like, sort of, like, designed-in-a-week kind of language that just, like, appeared out of nowhere. It's based on, uh, like, Guido's long experience with uh, languages like C and uh, ABC. Absolutely, and I think he took, like, two years. He started in, like, 1989, maybe, I seem to remember, and it came out in 91, version 1.0, something like that. Yeah, while well, I was, you know, just uh, a wee one, right? <laughs> exactly. like, running around, not even thinking about, like programming but yeah uh it is <laughs> it, it is a very mature language on top of that and um i mean i don't think i go into this in the post but it has evolved so remarkably like all of the changes after um like version 2.2 with new style classes and all of the like you know rationalizations that have occurred have really like proven that it still has the flexibility of a new language right where it's constantly under development and uh you can see a lot of that in sort of like the the interesting sort of like discussions and tensions that arise, uh, like you know, with the Python three issue. Yeah, the Python two, Python three issues. We probably have to have a whole show on that, but you know, it, <laughs> it is. Inter- I I actually have some opinions on that, but you know, I think I think it's interesting how um, how much the language is still sort of evolving in a positive way. So, for example, in what was it three three, they had added yield from to simplify generator method, which was really cool. In three four, they added async IO. In three five, there's talk of like type hinting. I mean, these are major sort of additions that are are coming on still twenty twenty five plus years out. And many of them have a really nice realistic uh, time sort of timeline to them because uh, I mean, yeah, Python three adoption it'll take some time. You'll probably do a whole show on that, and you'll have plenty of time to get it out before Python three is the majority. But yeah, the debate will still be raging if we have that show in <laughs> six months. I'm sure. Absolutely. So yeah, um, but I mean, Python is not a new language, and probably most of the people on this show, like, or who will be listening to this show, is are going to know that. I think absolutely. But I, one of the goals I kind of have for this show is um, obviously the people that take the time to like sign up and listen to a Python podcast generally are knowledgeable about it pretty well already. But you know, maybe they work in teams where people aren't. Like, I have a lot of conversations with folks who are in sort of the more compiled language space. And they always think of, oh, Python is like this scripting. It's almost like it's a bash shell script type of thing. And I don't think mm-hmm. they appreciate sort of the – basically what you laid out in your, your 10 myths here, which is, is really cool. So speaking of a compiled language, that's myth number two, right? Well, sure. And so uh, myth number two is that Python's not compiled. This one is a little bit of a, um, you know, sort of a – it's a, it's a little bit of like sort of a leading myth in a way. People do sort of bring this up. Um, but the the point is that like what they're trying to say is that Python is not like C plus plus and Java. Um, I mean, it it's it just ends up coming up always. As a company that uses primarily C plus plus and Java, uh, like we're going to have a lot of uh, people who sort of protest at like their fir- the first time they're seeing a REPL use effectively. You know, right. um, when you're doing like a live demo or something like that. So. Um, they they say like what do you mean there's no compilation what happens if I like you know get something wrong and it's like well you got tests and you'll be okay so um, <laughs> like 
Yeah, Python's not, and the other thing too is that Python is technically compiled. Like it does get compiled down to bytecode. It happens fast enough that it can happen sort of like, you know, right before runtime without incurring too much of like, you know, overhead for most sizes of projects. Right, and it does cache that output as, as the PCH is, right, in the PyCache or whatever it's called. Right, P- the, PY, the PYCs and the, and the PyCache in and, and Python 3, yes. And so, um, yeah, so basically it is a compiled language and it does execute from bytecode, which is exactly what Java does. And, I mean, the JVM like also like suffers from a thing called type array, which... Uh, not sure if I mentioned this in the post. It probably did, but yeah, it has type, type erasure because it's originally based on a Smalltalk VM, um, which and you know Smalltalk itself, like you know, isn't really a uh, like statically typed uh, language. So basically, um, effectively, the bytecode that's emitted by uh, Python is kind of on the same level as the bytecode emitted uh, on the Java side. And the main difference between those two runtimes is uh, the JIT, the just in time. Yeah, the file. JIT and the GC. That's that's interesting. Um, yeah, the most notable thing that comes to mind when you say that is sort of the the Java implementation of generics or templates, where in the language it looks like it's you know integers and other types of objects, but it's really just you know down to objects at the base, right? When it runs. The other thing that I think is interesting about this is I'm sure one of the hesitations is, what do you mean you're going to give just the source code away <laughs> as you know bare files, right? And you know Java and .NET and those things they don't. They don't protect you much, right? Because all you got to do is throw into a tool and you see basically the same thing. Absolutely. And rely on that for uh, security like whatsoever. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that these other languages can be decompiled. And so in some sense, you're more or less giving away your source code as well. And although there are obfuscators, if you really want to get to it, it doesn't matter so much. I think that brings us to the real actually important matter is, is Python secure or not? Yeah, that's the real question that people should be asking rather than wondering if they should distribute source code. Is Python secure? To which the answer is uh, yes, definitely. Um, to the point that we're willing to like actually uh, like put a lot of our security onto that platform. Um, I mean, and it's not just our own assessment. Like there have been uh, like studies done, surveys done of like you know the actual. Uh, Python source code that determined that it was like actually very safe, not really prone to many um, of the traditional like you know sort of C uh, <laughs> the C runtime issues that can occur that we've seen perhaps in like OpenSSL and so forth. Right. A lot of the a lot of the safety of the language, the fact that you can't work with raw bytes and pointers and offsets, is part of it. Then also you you also pointed out that the the small surface area you can accomplish so much with so little that you don't have yeah. to kind of put so much out there in your code so it's easier to guard that smaller code base right and that's just like a good security policy generally good security policy so um but i mean uh no specifically like uh you know when we were having our discussions about security using python with security here at paypal like we did talk about um the implications of using cpython and cpython's like maturity as well as like uh the code analysis that has occurred on it like you know was one of the deciding factors like basically if you look at uh java or something like that every every couple weeks there's a new java update because it has tried to like you know introduce a new security model uh, into it into its runtime uh, involving like protected memory and that sort of stuff so I mean maybe I should rephrase that basically uh, it makes promises that are hard to keep and so they have end up having like a lot of 
security releases. You don't see those same sort of security releases nearly as often as C Python, even though it has a very wide uh, usage. It's on like not only all the servers, but also most of like you know consumer computers at this point. Right, definitely all the Macs and Linux machines, anyway. Exactly. So I mean, it, if it were like a viable uh, like sort of attack, uh, <laughs> like. If it was sort of like a, vul- a viable vulnerability, if you would, it, w- it would probably be exploited by now. And so, like, it's it's and you can never like really prove security. You can just sort of go with what seems to be secure. And uh, like the way that you get a good idea of that is something that has been as widely tested as Python. Absolutely. Yeah, you cannot prove security by one example where a person's not hacked, right? But but right. more and more that it stands up over time, the more faith we should put in a system. Absolutely. So I think number four may be my absolute favorite, or at least the most encountered one for me, the folks that I interact with. And that's Python is really just a scripting language. And and this is this is the original myth, like, you know, in my experience. I agree. Yeah. So I mean, when I was giving my first uh, my first tech talk, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. After I finished, um, we were demoing a new application that basically controls the prices of PayPal. It's still used now. Uh, it's like before this application was released, it would take uh, on the order of weeks to get uh, new pricing schedules out um, for like you know certain vendors and that sort of stuff. And and this made it so that it became just a matter of like hours or minutes. And so we were demoing all of this, and by the time we got to the end, the first question out of the first person's mouth was, um, so wait a second, you did this in Python, right? And I'm like, oh, well, yes, uh, like, and how do you mean? <laughs> and they're like, but Python is a scripting language, you know, so what is this? Is this like CGI, or what is this? Like, how is it that you're, like, talking these complex network protocols uh, with a scripting language? As, as though I had done something very irresponsible. Um, <laughs> That's but, really I mean, you funny. Know, Four or five years later, here we are, and it's still like doing a bang-up job. So yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and so in this myth, I like basically go through, as mentioned like earlier in the program here, like you know, I go through all of the different um, like companies that have used Python in so many different ways. It is a general-purpose language, as it describes itself. So it has many, many purposes. Yeah, I really like your list, and maybe I'll just read a, a couple of them. So we've got like sure. Twilio doing telephony infrastructure. Obviously, payments with you guys, mm-hmm. neuroscience and psychology, with tons of examples. There's all the numerical analysis stuff with NumPy and SciPy. Uh, Disney, DreamWorks, and LucasArts are all doing animation rendering type stuff. Games, backends, email. Let's see what else is here. Uh, I think this the security and penetration testing stuff is interesting. Big data, you know Hadoop, yeah. and then obviously we just talked to the Mongo guys. There's great support on on those types of systems. Yeah, and we're spinning we're spinning up a disco cluster here too. Um, I mean, uh, it's disco has been around for like a little while, um, but uh, it's it's sort of like an Erlang and Python based uh, big data thing. We're spinning up a cluster here. It's actually been a pretty interesting experience so far. Oh, I bet that's I bet that's an interesting thing to work with. Definitely. My my favorite example of all of this, right, was sort of during uh, sort of a contentious time uh, in the Python infrastructure team's history here. I think Bind 10 came out and announced that they were going to, like, use Python for um, a good part of uh, DNS, right, which is basically as close to infrastructure as, uh, like, common infrastructure as the Internet has. So, um, I mean, I'm not sure where that's at right now. Yeah, that's pretty cool, though. Yeah, but uh, it's... 
it, it, it was it was like a really like sort of it drove it drove a stake through the heart of this myth that Python's just a scripting language. Well, I think one of the other concepts that leads to people thinking that is well, you can't have a real language without strong typing, and so people oh, think Python is weakly typed, right? No, that's that's so. Th- this is another one that um, I guess people like you know in in a practical meeting start getting into theoretical aspects, right? And they start getting into type systems, which um, I mean, you know, Python is definitely the language of uh, like sort of pragmatic doing of things, and uh, so. You know, that's my way of saying get shit done. I'm not sure what what uh, rating you have on this pro- <laughs> podcast, but uh, you know, I mean, and and people will bring up that it's weakly typed, and and to the response to this, the real response to this uh, should just be like, one, it's not, and it's, even if it was, like, so what? Like the thing has already been done by the end of the meeting, so uh, it's it's, exactly. it's really about getting like results. And um, Python's type system, while wonderful, I'm a very big fan. Um, like has has very little uh, <laughs> to do with you know it's. Well, is that just, I, I don't want to rule it out. I don't want to rule it out. But I, I like in a moment there. JavaScript is an example that you could actually do without real typing and, and still get stuff done. You know the node guys and so get, on. <laughs> it's true. I don't know if I include that one, but yeah. Um, so you know, it's true though. Um, it's uh yeah Python is like a strongly dynamically typed language and uh I, it works for strong dynamic people. Yeah, that's fantastic. So another myth, you know, people think of the scripting language and they think it's just this interpreted thing. And so, well, obviously, interpreted code is slow. And even if you just focus on C Python, I think the the performance story is super nuanced and interesting and non-obvious. So, you know, take like NumPy, for example. So if you did all of your sort of mathematics in pure Python and then interpreted that, that would probably be slow. But of course, they've taken the slow part and rewritten that in C. So that's sort of native and that's super fast. And if you can just kind of orchestrate calling into these low-level C functions, then, then you're talking about really fast even C Python. But there's more to it than that, right? There's a ton of runtimes or implementations. Definitely. I mean, uh, Python's demand has led to quite a bit of supply in all sorts of different like uh, aspects. Runtimes uh, definitely being one of them. So, I mean, you've got uh, C Python, which is the standard. You've got Python and Iron Python and PyPy, and then there are like you know more sort of uh, like academic ones, that, you know, for teaching how a runtime works and so forth. So. But but the real key here is that like calling it an interpreted language is sort of a, a form of micro labeling that doesn't actually like contribute to the overall like engineering discussion that it should be happening, which is that um, Python can have such a huge impact on your workflow. So yeah, you can iterate on your projects at such great speed that you end up like finding yourself using more advanced techniques or finding out that this area that you would have spent so much time optimizing otherwise is actually not really where the majority of the work of your application is being done. So <clears throat> basically it allows you to focus on what matters. When you take that to a macro level, looking at the whole ecosystem, there are people out there who have gone through that same workflow and have generalized out libraries that uh, you can then take advantage of all of their optimizations. So, like, you know, um, instances where Python has ended up using, like, SIMD, you know, which is, uh, like, sort of vectorized, like, you know, computation that, like, uh, would otherwise be, like, rather difficult to, like, code by hand in C and C++, not to mention distribute. Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's, it's, it's really... 
important to look at the whole uh, like process instead of just like individual adjectives about how like a given like single runtime works. Um, like the Python way uh, will lead to um, faster and more efficient code. You know that makes a big difference on the overall like complexity of your application, which can lead to like you know better maintenance aspects as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've I've talked with some companies that are doing amazing stuff and sort of building their almost entire enterprise foundation on top of Python. And they've got like the group I was speaking with. I can't, you know, it's NDA stuff. I can't really talk about it. But they sure. they had 160 internal enterprise business applications, and they were creating a Python layer to be the foundation of like sort of unifying all that data and underlying infrastructure and you know, if if you could do that, then you can do some pretty amazing, amazing stuff. That's that's not a slow system. You decide to do that with. Yeah, and I mean, with like honestly, enterprise is not the is not like you know sort of the, the domain of like performance being king. We end up spending like more time than we should talking about it because. I guess people want to go back to their, like, you know, college roots. But honestly, we can afford more machines. We put more machines on it because, you know, we need the redundancy anyway, right? And we, we, end, up, we end up having to, like, spend... We should spend more time uh, talking about, like, you know, just how our developers interact with our uh, development tools because that's really usually where, uh, <laughs> like, we have a bigger bottleneck, actually, like, getting projects done on time. If you, if you do it in Python, you end up having extra time. You can engineer your products for correct behavior, and you profile it. You know, Python has decent profilers built right in. And then uh, you can optimize it as need be. And, you know, we've even found uh, spare cycles to write some of our hot loops in C. Yeah, maybe even have some time to write some unit tests to make sure it works right when you have <laughs> Yeah, no, qual- quality is is what lets us uh, sort of like sleep soundly at night. <laughs> That's what's going to like, you know, actually make for uh, like, you know, successful business in the long term, generally speaking. Right. So that was uh, myth number six, which was that Python is slow. And I think you have kind of a, a pair of myths that talk about scaling. And one of them is kind of, well, number seven is Python does not scale. And it, you have some really interesting examples on sort of performance scale there. Well, yeah, because this one, this one is really is just so easily quashed by, by counterexample, right? Like YouTube, I think, is what, the second largest website on the Internet right now, right? We talk about Dropbox, Discuss, Eventbrite, Reddit, right? Um, then we have, like, uh, Twilio with the telephony, right? And Instagram and Yelp. And, uh, I mean, even games, right? Like EVE Online and Second Life, right? They're actually areas where... Um, you find the most radical uh, like scaling stories because uh, unlike enterprise companies like PayPal and Bank of America, they don't just they're not made of money, right? Like the game has to be fun and they run a tight margin and uh, they do it for like the love of crafting like a unique sort of like self-contained system. And they end up like you know creating such uh, technology marvels as Stackless and Eventlet and all that sort of stuff. So. Well, Stackless and Eventlet and, you know, Tornado, AsyncIO, all these sorts of things are sort of in the general realm of concurrency and async processing. And that's your myth number eight, right, is that Python, that it does lack good support for sort of concurrency and multithreading. Yeah, so this one, I think, is uh, one area where, like, Python probably gets the most legitimate, like, technology flack. And that's because, uh, I would say that's because Python sort of has a stated mission of there's only one obvious way to do something. And in and in the realm of concurrency, unfortunately, that's not true. So CPython, uh, like, you know, by itself is sort of, sort of a runtime environment. 
when you introduce a uh, concurrency like sort of library to that, you change your like fundamental like runtime behaviors. Uh, you basically have added a layer on top of CPython's sort of native like main thread or whatever you want to call it. Now either you're working with threads or greenlets or promises or deferreds, and uh, that that really like. There are so many different opinions that you can have about that like area of computing that Python has itself like you know spawned I think probably at this point a dozen uh, different ways to do concurrency. Right. I, I think one of the things that's that people immediately jump to, some people anyway, when they hear I need more concurrency is let me kick off a bunch of threads. And I think better or worse, the whole Node.js thing that's taken you know was really popular sort of coming up a few years ago is showing that you can get really great concurrency with very very few threads if you're willing to sort of put those threads you know reuse those threads when they're generally waiting on a web service call or a database call or disk io or something like that right yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's been really amazing how uh, we've sort of rediscovered these uh, techniques. Um, one of the guys on the Python infrastructure team here actually worked on the AIM servers, if you remember AOL Instant Messenger. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that was all, and they did it all with uh, C and callbacks and, uh, you know, like they... Actually, like, we end up doing a lot of the stuff that he did back in the day. Like, we end up redoing that sort of now. <laughs> it's It's been really nice having sort of a, a gray beard, if you would, around. Uh, because basically he sort of, like, I think back in the day he was working with SSL BIO and, like, OpenSSL's BIOs. And uh, today that we're doing sort of the same thing. And, you know, back in the day they also had trouble with threads. And these days uh, we also, we, we still find trouble with threads. And these aren't Python-specific troubles. It's just that threaded programming uh, bears a few risks. And uh, so in our infrastructure, anyway, we've sort of, like, taken, we've made some decisions for our developers that will allow us to uh, pre-mitigate those uh, risks, you know. And one of those is to, like, basically sort of limit ourselves to a somewhat fixed number of threads. You don't want to have like one thread per request, for instance, in a uh, in a server because um, that means that as your load goes up, your your contention and overhead like sort of also start going up. Sure, yeah, and even just the pure memory from uh, from just the stack space for each thread can start to become significant when you're talking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of threads. It, it's a problem, yeah. Right. And and so what we end up uh, with in a lot of cases um, for applications that have gone with a threaded model, and this isn't these aren't like Python applications. They end up topping out with sort of a hard stop. They start falling behind on their work without like you know uh, being able to respond and shed load nicely. We can sort of chalk up all of our good server behavior to just having the time to actually like analyze how our application works, add additional uh, sort of behaviors and uh, instrument it appropriately uh, because we're not spending all of our time uh, wrangling with a thread per request model or, or uh, you know. But you really do have to, I mean, going back to the original issue of concurrency support, um, like a concurrency uh, library is more than just an, any other library because you end up having to adopt some aspect of its philosophy. And there aren't any real uh, easy answers there. You need to look at what they are, find out what, uh, you know, like sort of, uh, is easily digested by you and your brain, and then uh, look at look at examples of how other people have architected their applications. If you don't have like strong opinions of your own, 
Um, it's a learning process, and this is something I feel that maybe uh, like they should spend more time on back in sc- most schools, where unfortunately they mostly just uh, focus on processes and threads, which, while important, aren't the yeah, whole story. absolutely. Well, maybe that that's changing in the future. I a friend of mine has a really interesting saying or way of looking at the world. He says, you know, look, when you're writing this multi-threaded concurrent code, if you try to get too tricky, you're writing code like right at the limit of your ability to understand what you're doing and debugging code is harder mm-hmm. than writing code so you're writing code that you literally can't debug <laughs> you know what i mean like you've just gone right over right. that barrier now it's like i've created this monster i gotta live with so that, that's pretty interesting and and i mean the code certainly takes on its own uh <laughs> a soul of its own but like basically when you start running it at scale and it's spread across many pools of many machines uh like it it has it ends up like having a almost organic nature uh, when you take into account like load balancers and like you know variations in the network and so forth. You need to make time f- for all of those uh, sort of emergent behaviors that are going to come up when you deploy. Yeah, absolutely. So myth number nine is that Python programmers are scarce. Like I, I think I mentioned in the in the myth, that, like this is somewhat true, right? It depends what you're comparing it to, though, um, because but like I said before. Um, you know, we have we one developer that goes and creates three production services in one right. year. Do you need a huge team of Python developers to accomplish some project? Maybe, maybe not. It, yeah, maybe not. Uh, actually, almost certainly not. Almost, almost certainly not as many as you would need for other uh, stacks. And that's sort of reflected in uh, like every Python team that I've seen, um, not just here at PayPal, but also like across uh, the industries that like they end up generally being. Um, smaller and uh, more effective, and if you like, the literature sort of backs up that these are actually not um, bad things to have. Uh, people worry about people getting hit by buses, and it's nice for you know nice of them to be so uh, concerned. But <laughs> but um, but really, like one of the keys with Python is that you can you can learn it very quickly. Um, and it has a really nice learning curve. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's just me, but I had a really nice time transitioning from PHP to Django, digging deeper into the standard library, reading the source code of uh, like you know just sort of like modules like iter tools and collections and these sorts of things, and learning about Python from examples that are not opaque like they were in uh, like you know C plus plus. And Java, I felt that those, um, like you know, applica- like those sort of stacks were more opaque, and, and Python was more open. And um, then, like you know, w- with the rise of GitHub and so forth, going and learning, uh, like you know, the fundamentals of web frameworks from uh, Bottle and Django source code, and basically, like uh, you sort of, it, it sort of has a natural learning curve to it. Uh, that basically, without any of like you know official training or standard training, like you know we were able to rise to the level of like uh, effective infrastructure engineers. And I had a similar experience, you know, when I first learned C plus plus way back in the day. I remember it; it was this mountain I climbed, you know. And learning Python, I mean, obviously, learning as a second language makes it a next language, not the first language, makes it uh, easier to do. But I think even if I had learned it originally, it would have been a much more enjoyable experience. So, And then, um, you know, you make some interesting points about, well, there may be not so many Python developers or however many there are, there's going to be more. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, especially when, uh, like, there are, bas- there are changes happening in education right now where Python is becoming, like, I think the the top teaching Exactly. Language. That's that's what I was thinking of is that, you know, just the last couple of years ago, there that it flipped, I think, from Java maybe into Python being the most taught 
programming language in college. So a little while that will have some big effects, you know. Yeah, and uh, well, already we're seeing it. I mean, um, if your company has a policy that they'll uh, like for a while, PayPal had a policy where they, where they would only hire experienced engineers, um, not straight out of college. But already we're seeing people coming out of college being hired at PayPal whose primary experience is in Python. Um, so like the effect is already there, and uh, I mean, frankly, of course, I think it's a good thing, but. Is especially because Python has so many language features that are so like you know well documented and well thought through and designed through PEPs and like you know the Python enhancement processes. So um, I mean it's it's actually it's just a more open, approachable uh, language that has so much to teach um, that even if you're going to end up working in other languages, I recommend studying Python. Unless it's going to spoil you for other languages, which has been known to occur. If you don't want to go to work anymore because you have to go back to writing embedded C, you may want to stay away from Python. That's right. We, we like C. We like yeah, C, yeah, too. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. Though. So yeah. um, I think your final myth actually had some of the most interesting actual statistics in it. That's that Python is not for large projects, as in large number of uh, lines of code. Right. So, I mean, before we talked about, uh, like, scaling... Uh, traffic, which YouTube and others like, you know, clearly uh, disprove that you can just like Python has <laughs> Python has a consistent intuitive runtime and it can scale simply. But um, scaling the developer side of uh, things is not as simple, right? People are complex, um, and so. But that said, I mean, there have been many, many ways, like you know, examples of Python scaling uh, to the enterprise level. Um, and you know here here at like PayPal and eBay is you know we have a lot of small teams but we have some larger ones too with like multiple uh, experienced developers and a couple of junior developers and so forth so um, on the OpenStack side uh, especially so um, yeah Bank of America like I mentioned before has like you know five thousand Python developers and they just spun that out of nowhere maybe that's why Python developers are scarce. yeah maybe they grabbed them all up yeah you said they have over ten million lines of Python code which is kind of crazy. I mean, yeah, uh, and and J and I mean, they did that. I think the I mean, either they did that because J.P. Morgan was doing it, or J.P. Morgan did it because Bank of America was doing it, or maybe like you know, it was just a coincidence. But uh, the financial industry has certainly seen like uh, you know a large amount of Python adoption. And the th- the important thing too is that like when your company starts getting big enough, uh, heterogeneity becomes a really important aspect of your recruiting strategy. So, uh, like, if you really do actually need uh, 2,000, 3,000 developers, then uh, maybe you shouldn't be banking on all of them, uh, you know, being from one uh, programming discipline, right? Right. so it basically, uh, with trends in education and uh, open source dictating a lot of what talents is available, you should focus on having uh, language agnostic protocols and uh, like well-designed uh, lar- larger architectures that you can plug many languages stacks into. And that's what we have here at PayPal, where we have um, C++, Java, Python, uh, Node, and um, there there even been some fledgling work done with like Scala and Go. And certainly, as we as we like adding, so doing C was like hard. That like built PayPal. Then adding Java was like you know 
still pretty hard. When we added Python, like, you know, we actually created reference implementations and standards for a lot of these emergent protocols, and then other stacks, like, can come and sort of, like, follow suit. If you're, if you're looking, if you're actually someone, if there's actually someone in charge of a big project listening to this podcast right now, you know, as long as you have good talent, good architecture, um, you can definitely use Python as part of a large project. We, we have many processes detailed in the blog post that can, like, you know, lead to good practices, best practices uh, for a variety of environments. Yeah, that's great. You talk about, like, static code analysis with PyFlakes and other things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a big world out there. It's a big industry. And um, Python has a long history and, uh, like, a lot of experience it can bring uh, to enhance basically any, like, a company of any size, if you ask me. Um, I mean, it's it's not all about like you know just uh, evangelizing and as they say, being religious about like you know a uh, a, a given technology. Um, Python is just a really handy piece that fits into a lot of applications. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And so, people out there listening, if they're sort of having these debates at work or on their projects, and they're like, I'd really like to use Python, but people keep laughing at me and say it's not you know whatever, right? Yeah, I, I really recommend checking out Mahmoud's article 10 minutes of enterprise python which i'll link to from the show notes and you can you know, share that or you can share this this longer form uh conversation that we had so <laughs> I, I just wish I, I wish i had a time machine so i could send it back to me uh, a few years ago <laughs> that makes really. yeah i can see um, that what would you say to your former self at work i would give him this you know this article <laughs> that's great it it really would simplify things but yeah um, uh, and also maybe I'll just, I'd send some stock. stock yeah, exactly. Of course. Anyways. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's, right. you know, this has been a super interesting conversation. And a question I'd like to ask my guests on sort of on the way out the door is so much of Python is driven by open source stuff. And there's so much great stuff on PyPy and GitHub and so on. Do you have like a favorite thing that, you know, you maybe want to call some attention to favorite project? I have Many favorites. Like one of the ones that uh, I remember looking at recently and being really impressed with the implementation was a, it was a very small thing. It's called I think NetAdder or something like that, and it was just a library for working with IPs and IP ranges. But uh, you know, as I'm wont to do, I went and I looked at the code, and it was just really exquisitely implemented. Um, so I mean, it's it's for some reason like my mind always jumps to that, like because I was like, you know, as I looked at the code, I was just like, I couldn't do a better job. I recently saw um, some guy, I can't remember who, probably in your neighborhood in San Francisco, being interviewed on Bloomberg News about they had some sort of museum uh, art set up about how code is art and like the beauty of algorithms. And, you know, maybe that's sort of part of it. That, that, that's 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 a Gleetzman. He uh, he works. Oh, here. He works with you. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, he was part of one of the acquisitions that we had that used uh, a lot of Python, actually. Um and so he uses our code internally as well. Uh, and uh, no, I mean, he's a super active guy, lots of great ideas. Um, I think his name Benjamin. Yeah, Blitz. that sounds yeah. correct. I just, I didn't, I was, it was literally on TV, so I didn't, you know, like save it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was a weird crossover for sure. Um, let's see. Uh, but I mean, in terms of open source projects I've been spending a lot of time on, I mean, I've worked a lot on this one recently called Boltons. Basically, like these are sort of, Things that I wish were built into Python, like you know, over the years I've just sort of accumulated all of these these utils, mm-hmm. right? That I've seen, like you know, 
implementations of in various like you know uh, libraries internally, right? They're just like, oh, like why doesn't this exist? They'll throw something together that sort of works for them, um, but it's not as well tested and generalized. So this sort of like uh, you know, it's just a a meta toolbox. It's like a toolbox of all these tools for like you know toolboxes for working with like. Um, a variety of different things, caches and strings, and some of them are designed as extensions to uh, like uh, Ither tools and other built-in uh, like modules. Ither tools was certainly one of like I mean, if you ask me what my favorite like Python modules were, like the standard library ones, I have a list for <laughs> Ither sure. tools is up there. You know? huh? Ither tools, collections. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of the select module. Uh, <laughs> like there there are just so many like good standard library things built right in. And that batteries included aspect of Python wasn't just uh, responsible for drawing me to Python in the first place, but it was like responsible for what I feel was almost like a postgraduate education in uh, in like you know programming. Uh, like <laughs> it's great. I'm getting nostalgic now. <laughs> Anyways, so. Get emotional about the packages. Okay, so uh, is there any final thing you want to kind of call the attention to for the listeners or give a shout-out to well, I mean, or anything like that? Like you mentioned in the beginning, we've got, like, one of the things, one of my passion projects on the side is I have a little, like, gig. It's not a gig. I don't get paid or anything. It's called Hat Note. You know, we're working on Wikipedia-based projects. Maybe you've uh, seen or heard, uh, like, listen to Wikipedia. Um, our new thing is, like, a newsletter that just summarizes all the work that Wikipedians, you know, working on. Uh, and so it's called the Wikipedia. You can visit it weekly, like, you know, once per week, weekly.hatnote. It's like uh, the thing you wear on your head and the thing you write to <laughs> a loved one, uh, dot com. That's fantastic. The other one's at listen.hatnote.com. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, and, and these are all Python-based as well, open source. You can find the, the code at github.com forward slash hatnote. Um, you know, those are fun weekend projects that I don't have to hold to. S- they don't have to uh, process money, for example. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was. <laughs> I mean, they are high quality projects. I like to think, but but they don't have to be held to the same right. standards. Right. The, the consequence of so failure is lower, which makes them maybe more relaxing to work on. Yeah. The, you you nailed it. You got me. I, I think that's that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Mahmoud, for being on the show. This has been a super interesting conversation. Yeah, and I think the the view inside to some of these big companies like it really might give people a different perspective on Python. So I hope so anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was it was great being here. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, thanks. Talk to you later. All right, bye bye. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. I want to say thank you for listening, and let's let Wikipedia. Take us on out of here.